Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would come, that you would speak to us, that you would inform us of the way and the manner in which you would be worshipped. So important, critically important, central to what we do. And if all we did was worship, Lord, we know that would be enough. So we we commit this time to you. We pray that you would open our hearts, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 1. For those of you that are toting a Bible or a device... I love that. King David, backing up a little bit, uh, when he was an old man, he passed the throne to Solomon, and then he did something that carried on down through the centuries. He raised up 24 divisions of men from different clans. All right, Aaron, Moses' brother, had been the first high priest. Let me frame this. And and the sons of Aaron had been the ones who were appointed by God among the tribe of Levi. So tribe of Levi, sons of Aaron, they were the ones that carried out the temple ordinances, the temple work. The rest of the Levites carried out all of the jobs that were associated with the temple, the actual work in the temple, sacrifices and ministering in the temple. And so what David did is as Israel had multiplied and he knew that God was going to get a house because, and God had told him he couldn't build a house, but his son would, is that they took out of the sons of Aaron, they divided that into 24 clans. And those 24 clans were divisions among the sons of Aaron for doing the work of the ministry as it is, or as it was in in the temple. Now, among those 24 divisions was the clan of Abijah. And it was Abijah's turn in the first century, prior to the birth of Christ, uh, to perform the temple ordinances. Now, there was a man named Zacharias, who we see in Luke chapter 1 here, and he traveled, he lived in the hill country of Judah, which was some distance away, not a terribly long distance, but some distance away. He traveled to Jerusalem because it was his turn. He was of the clan or the, the, the division of Abijah. And there he was in Jerusalem fulfilling his priestly duties. And uh, while he was there, he was in the temple. He was burning incense, which is always symbolic of prayer in God's word. The altar of incense inside the temple proper was where they would put incense and the smoke would rise up and it was symbolic of the prayers of the people rising up to God. All of a sudden, in the middle of this, an angel appears to him, an archangel named Gabriel. And he says to Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Your wife is barren. You and your wife are old. He doesn't say that exactly, but the text does tell us that they were advanced in years and of old age. And and he says, your prayers have been answered. They've been heard. And you and your wife will soon have a son. He would be named John. 
Zacharias in his unbelief, <laughs> essentially, I think he kind of gently called the angel on the carpet. I, they didn't have carpet, but <laughs> he was challenging the guy, and he said, "Oh, well, what do you mean? I, I don't, I don't get what you're telling me. Seriously, you know, look at us." Essentially, is what he's saying. And the angel essentially told Zacharias, "You will not be able to talk until after the baby's born." And so he got a rebuke from the angel and he went out and the people were trying to understand what he was saying. And I picture him signing, trying to, you know, bigger than a bread box and all that. So the point was, is that he and his wife were advanced in years, as I mentioned, of old age. And, and this was a miracle. And the Lord had taken away, she says, she virtually says, the Lord has taken away my reproach. Now reproach is Bible language for criticism. If a woman didn't have kids, they were thought to be cursed in a sense, and that that was a place for reproach. It was a criticism. We're told to be, to live our lives as Christians, to be above reproach, above criticism. It doesn't mean that we always are, but it means that that's the ideal. So breaking in here uh, into Luke chapter 1, a few months later, Gabriel, the same guy, the same angel, he goes and he pays a visit to Mary. A teenage girl living in Nazareth, betrothed, engaged to a guy, but not married. And uh, in verse 28 of chapter 1 in the Gospel of Luke, it says, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, O highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. I would imagine Mary's eyes were probably as big as saucers at that point. She's just going about her day. And it says, when she saw him, she was troubled at the saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. What, who is this guy? Uh, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. You have found grace. Same word, charis. You've found grace with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the son of the most high, of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The house of Jacob is Israel. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Gabriel goes on to tell her at that point uh, that she would be with child by the Holy Spirit. That she, Because she's trying to figure out, I've not known a man. And he said, the, 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 the spirit of the Most High will overshadow you. He, you will be with God's son in your womb. And so, and, and that he would be called the son of God. And there's not time to go through all the text on that, because it, it, I, I want to get to the point of our study this morning. So he tells her at that point that her relative Elizabeth, the wife of Zacharias, is in her sixth month of pregnancy. So, it's probably 90 or 100 miles that she would have to travel to be able to go and see Elizabeth. And that as the angel had told her all that was about to come to pass, I would imagine that she would be really excited, but also really perplexed. And probably she understood that Elizabeth would be the only other one that would understand the things that were going on with her, with them, regarding this angel. So it says in the text that Mary immediately traveled to visit her relative, Elizabeth. So, and, and 
she had to understand that, that Elizabeth would know what was going on because she, the angel told her that Elizabeth was in her six months. So she goes in, she goes, she travels all the way from Nazareth down to the hill country of Judah. Again, where, where Zechariah lived and she goes to Zechariah's house, it says, and, and that Mary walking into the house greets Elizabeth. And at the sound of her voice, we're told that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And now in Luke 144, she's responding to Mary. She says, for indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Now we're told in verse 15 of chapter 1 here in Luke, that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So where does life begin again? Verse 45, blessed is she who believed for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. This is Elizabeth talking to Mary. So Elizabeth's faith was active. It was an active faith. She understood. And John the Baptist had not yet been born. Zacharias was still mute. And now here's Mary in front of her and telling her about all of these things. And as a result, Elizabeth pronounces a blessing on Mary for her faith. What was Mary's response? She spontaneously begins to worship God. And we call this section the Song of Mary. It's her song of praise to God for all that he had done. We're going to go through this and and we're going to break it down because there is a lot to be said about worship from this passage. In Luke 1.46, we read, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, I want you to notice in verse 46 that Mary directs her praise upwards. This is all about God. There is nothing about, she, she doesn't, she goes into what God has done for her, but this isn't about Mary. This is about God's work in her life. Critical aspect of worship, recognizing God's work in our lives. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. He's the object of her worship. Mary's relationship with God was personal. And in her praise, she describes the nature of that relationship from both sides. In verse 47, she refers to God as her Savior. And in verse 48, she refers to herself as his maidservant, his doule. Uh, if you have hung out with Bible circles much, you know that the Greek word for a bond slave is doulos. And that's a male slave. A bond slave, a female bond slave is a doule. It's the same, same word. It's just has, it's gender specific. And so she's referring to herself in this relationship that she has with God as his bond slave, his willful slave. Note in verse 48, Mary does not say, and all generations will call me worthy. That's a really important distinction. Mary knew her place and she understood it was only by God's grace that she had been bestowed this highest of honors. Understand that, folks. Uh, You know, 
Because of that, she says, all generations will call me blessed. She was as reliant upon the grace of God as anyone sitting in this room. There was nothing special about Mary. Uh, She says, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. In other words, she realized that she needed a Savior if she were sinless, as so much for Catholic dogma here, she would have no need. She says, my soul, in verse 46, and that refers to one's mind and emotions. And in verse 47, she says, my spirit. And that's a reference to one's essence, who we are, the deepest part of who we are. I want you to understand something about worship. It is impossible for one who has not been regenerated, who has not been born again of God's spirit through the atoning work of Christ to have any aspect of meaningful worship to God. There's a lot of people out there that are in that place. The mind and the emotions may respond, but unless the spirit has been made alive, that person remains dead in their sins. So Mary says, my soul, my mind, and my emotions magnify the Lord because my spirit, the deepest part of who I am, is rejoicing in God, my Savior. It's the definition of worship, okay? My mind and my emotions are engaged, yes. And we're going to talk about the dangers, that there are some dangers there as well as we go along here, because we're going to talk about uh, the difference between catharsis and worship. Uh, and that's a very important distinction to make. And you'll understand, I'll explain it when we get there. But the point is, she, she's essentially talking about, as she worships, she's talking about my mind, my emotions are engaged, yes. But it's a result of my spirit rejoicing in God. She also has great understanding here of God's character and his nature. In verse 49, she speaks of God's might, of his power, and of his holiness. Her understanding goes beyond head knowledge. Note that, because she applies her understanding of God first to herself, and then she applies it to others. She says, in might, he has done great things, in his might, he's done great things for me. And she worships him for it. In verse 50, she begins to talk about others. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. We see here that Mary understands the kindness of God. Uh, We're told in, I believe it's in the book of Hebrews, to behold the kindness and the severity of God. Those who fear, what she says here, his mercy is on those who fear from generation to generation. It's about a profound reverence. And and there are different words for the word fear. This is definitely a, a it's a fear that is based in that the object of my worship is one who I not only adore, but I revere. I, I utterly respect. She talks about the severity of God in verse 50. He has shown strength in his arm. With his arm, he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. This is a teenage girl. It amazes me. He, I'll read through to verse 55, and then we'll take a look. Uh, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in his remembrance of his mercy. Uh, 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Notice Mary's emphasis in this. As she praises God, as she worships the Lord, it's all about him. She says, he has shown strength. He has scattered the proud. He has put down the mighty. He has filled the hungry. He has helped his servant Israel. He is the one who spoke to our fathers. We sang the song this morning, it's all about you. It's not about me. So what is worship? What is this thing that we do? And and, and yes, worshiping God in, in a public service like this is one thing. But there are many ways in which we worship God. We'll talk about that as we go. Here's the Webster's 1828 Dictionary definition of worship. Uh, It says it's a transitive verb. In other words, a transitive verb is a verb that has an object. And again, we're talking about the object of our worship here being the Lord. It says to adore, to to pay divine honors to, to reverence with supreme respect and veneration. We were praying before service and Ethan um, was up in the sound booth uh, he was, we were praying. I had told him about what we were doing this morning and where I was going to be teaching. And he was in his prayer talking about how our worship is practice for heaven. And that just spoke to my heart. I just thought that is so good. And I, and I thought about times where I've been critical about worship because the music was, you know, not my style or it was too loud or it was too low or it was this or it was that. And a whole head full of things came into my mind And I thought, what if the Lord was literally, virtually here? Would that change? I'm telling you, it would change. I wouldn't be worried about it. I wouldn't be worried about the the volume. I wouldn't be worried about the, the style. I would be on my face. I would be utterly lost in worshiping Christ Jesus, my Lord. Anyway, back to God's word. There's a principle in Bible study that's really, I've always found this fascinating. It's called the principle of first mention. And that's where you take a topic such as this, worship, and you go back and you search out God's word and you say, where was the first place that it occurred? Because there's usually something significant about that. Genesis chapter four, first place. In Genesis 4, 25 and 26, we read, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son named, and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. So we're, we're talking about Adam and Eve here, and their son Seth, and he would carry the line of Messiah. He would be the beginning of the line of Messiah coming from Adam and Eve. And verse 26 in Genesis 4 says, And as for Seth, To him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then, and this is this is interesting. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Literally in Hebrew, I looked at this, and it's to proclaim the Lord's fame. Is what it says in the New Living Translation of of Genesis four twenty six. It says, when Seth grew up, he had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. 
So how far back do we go when we see people worshiping God? Adam and Eve's grandson? That's a long ways back. In other words, it didn't take long for people to see their need after Adam and Eve were driven from the garden and after their one son killed the other and that son wasn't going to be worshiping the Lord, Cain. And, and now they have another son who replaces Abel and his son. He and his son end up being the first ones to worship. I just think that's awesome. Why is it? Because God commands worship. I know that's a strong statement, but it's true. He commands worship. He is so far above and beyond us, and yet he is personal and comes alongside us. And and the response of my heart, gang, the response of my heart when I consider the greatness and the goodness of God, as Mary's doing here, the only thing I can do, and the greatest thing I can do is worship. To worship God. It's interesting because looking here at Seth and Enosh, we see that humanity has come together for worship and to worship God from the beginning. Because it's the only right response to the God who, as Hebrews 1 proclaims, upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, I want to talk about where worship goes sideways. I want to talk about when worship of God gets derailed. And folks, we're living in an age where that's happening. And part of this message is to issue a warning. Our common enemy hates worship. Think about it. Satan was likely the worship leader in heaven. And he demanded worship of himself as opposed to worship of God. And he and a third of the angelic host was cast down. So the idea that Satan was a master musician, the, the worship leader of heaven, comes from Ezekiel 28.13. And speaking of Satan specifically here, it says, The workmanship of your timbrels and your pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. So whether or not Satan was in charge of music before he fell from glory is it's probably of little consequence. But the real takeaway here is why he fell. It was pride. And since he was cast down, he has, has and is, is working to derail God's people from worshiping him. God warns in Exodus 34. And I'm, these are sample passages. I mean, there is a lot in God's word about what happens when worship gets derailed and what happens, what that leads to, if it's not corrected, is when it becomes perverted. It becomes perverse worship. So in Exodus 34, verses 12 to 16, we read, he says, take heed for yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst, but you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images. They are worshiping someone that's not me. And we know the origin of that is is from the gates of hell. So God is saying, no, don't be a participant in that. Break it down. Get rid of it. 
He says in verse 14, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you, and, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. In other words, Israel, if you're not careful, if you don't destroy the false worship, it'll overwhelm you. It will derail your worship. And it did. Once worship is derailed, the next step, as I mentioned, is perversion. And worship of God perverted. Uh, we see a great example in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. In verse 12, he says, When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? These are people that have been derailed, and now they're carrying it into the courts of the temple. He says, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. We talked about incense. These are things that God has ordained. But because their hearts were wrong, because their hearts had been corrupted, because this is perverse worship, he says, I don't want anything to do with it. He says, incense is an abomination to me. New moons, Sabbaths, calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They're a trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. I love this. He breaks into the middle of this passage with grace. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. And then God appeals to these people who's, who had strayed into this horrible form of worship, going through the outer emotions, but their hearts were dark. He says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So how does that apply to us? How does that apply to the United States of America in 2022? First time I said that. Let's bring it home. I'm going to read an article I don't know if you've heard of uh, Keith and Kristen Getty. Uh, This is an article from the Christian Post. It says, writer Keith Getty is warning church leaders about the modern worship movement, which he describes as one of cultural relevance that is utterly dangerous and is contributing to the de-Christianizing of God's people. That's serious stuff. In an interview with the Christian Post, Getty said many modern worship songs focus on emotionalism rather than sound doctrine and scriptural truths. This, he said, leads to a generation ill-equipped to understand or defend the Christian faith. An authentic generation doesn't begin with catharsis. What catharsis is, is it's an emotional purging. Have you ever had a really, I mean, <laughs> they call it ugly crying? Have you ever, I mean, just wept? 
and afterwards you feel like a settledness in your soul. You, 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 there's just a peace that comes about. That's catharsis. It is actually a physiological process that we go through when we have a cathartic reaction. What he's saying is that worship shouldn't begin with catharsis. I'm looking for feel-good stuff. It should begin with the object of our worship being the Lord himself. He says authentic generation doesn't begin with catharsis. It has to begin with an authentic picture of the God of the Bible, he explained. Here's one deception. When my worship experience is more about how I feel than who he is, that's catharsis. And I need to check my heart and my theology. Over 75% of what are called the great hymns of the faith talk about eternity, heaven, hell, and the fact that we have peace with God. Yet, less than 5% talk of, uh, of modern worship songs talk about eternity. Many worship songs are focused on this earth, Getty said. I believe that the modern worship movement is a movement for cultural relevance. It's a dechristianizing and of God's people. It's utterly dangerous. I have no quibbles saying enough is enough. This can't happen to build an authentic generation. Folks, worship in many churches, and I, this is not me throwing rocks at other churches. This is me speaking in general terms about the state of worship. It's become about us. It's become about how I feel. It's, it's, it's become derailed. And if we're not careful, it'll get perverted. And God doesn't take well to that. He wants to be worshipped as he is. He wants to be the object of our worship. The object, uh, object of my worship shouldn't be me. It always has to be him. Enough is enough. This can't happen to build an authentic generation. Keith Getty and his wife Kristen are passionate about fostering a reformation. In worship music. Part of our campaign is to get our generation, the younger generation, to know the great hymns of the faith, says Getty. It's not about fascination with the time period. It's about writing music that explains the gospel and also is beautiful art. Beautiful art lasts, he said. At the end of the day, you sing a song for 50 years and that's more valuable than the one you sing for 50 months. And I'm not saying that all we're singing from here forward is old hymns. I like a lot of the contemporary stuff. I also think a lot of the contemporary stuff, some of them I call Jesus is my girlfriend songs. <laughs> they drive me nuts. I listen to this, I turn it off. But the point is, we live in the most exciting generation to be a Christian. But it's also the most challenging generation. The idea that Christianity is cool or easy is not biblical. It's a misnomer for our generation. Through music, we want to build deep believers who are who know and love Christ. So that's the end of his article. And what that does in my mind is it begs the question, well, how do we do that? How? In this section of this morning's message, I have titled Worship simplified. Now, I mentioned the, the principle of first mention. Now, the, the principle of first mention in the Old Testament, obviously, Adam and Eve's grandson, <laughs> from that point, men began to worship God by name, it says. But we see another first mention here with the early church. 
And yes, there were, I mean, the angels were, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the angels and the, and, and the worship that was going on out in the field when Christ was born and all that. I'm, I'm not making, taking issue with that. I'm talking about the early church. Us. In the beginning. Acts chapter 2 verses 46 and 47 says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You know, if you, it, I could read more, but time doesn't really permit. Uh, as far as the book of Acts here goes, I call it the four-legged stool. Some say three if you leave worship out, but worship is a vital part of our experience as Christians. And it's God's word. Are you spending time in God's word? Mary was a woman of God's word. You've got to understand that there are no less than 12 allusions to the Old Testament in her song of praise. She knew God's word and her worship was in accord with God's word. Something that our worship leaders here, because I mean, as a pastor, I'm the worship leader and we have a worship leader that operates and in my direction and all that. But I'm very, very strong on the fact that our worship has to be biblical. I mean, and, and that's something that I'm very clear on. And yeah, and I'm not going to nitpick if something gets slipped in and, and all of that because there's stuff out there. My point is, is that our intention is to worship God as he is. How do we know how he is? He's revealed himself through his word. So the first leg on the stool is God's word. The other, another leg on the stool is fellowship. Are you spending time in corporate worship? Of course, all of you that I'm looking at here are. <laughs> and, and I understand that there are those at home that are, are shut in or, or for various reasons are doing that. But the point is, is that fellowship is a part of it. It's a vital part of being a healthy believer. And out of that, we worship God together. I love, I go back into the kitchen before service usually, and I spend time in prayer. I might take a last minute look at my notes or whatever, but I usually take that time to go back. And I love when the, like the kitchen door was open this morning, and I love hearing God's people worship. I just love that. And I want to encourage you, don't be afraid of how you sound. You, <laughs> I remember one time they left the, they accidentally left a microphone on for the last song. And as I sang, it came out over the speakers. And, and I think Brian was up there and he's like calling the guy that was at home, not there today saying, Hey, you know, what's going on? And they were trying to figure it out. They didn't know it was their pastor that was out there croaking away. Didn't sound great. I heard it. <laughs> But I was singing to the Lord, so I don't care. I really don't care. So am I in fellowship? Do I, am I in corporate worship? And am I spending time in prayer? Very often, folks, I will encourage people, while you're worshiping, especially when it's a deeply spiritual, biblically-based song, make it a prayer. Make it a prayer. It's not about me. It's about you, Lord. And I worship you and allow yourself to go there. Give him the praise that he's due. And the last leg on this four-legged stool is worship. 
Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, which is also your called in one body, and be thankful. Is that corporate aspect. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He's talking about the word of God. He's talking about corporate worship. Teaching, admonishing one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the room? No, to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the question is, well, how do we worship? How do we do this thing called worship? And the answer is yes, an aspect of worship is when we're here singing corporately together, when we're here listening to God's word, this is an act of worship. You're, it's worth-ship. You're ascribing worth, value to what happens here. That's why you're here. That's why you're tuned in online. But the bottom line is worship from the heart. We worship with our lives. It's not as much about style or personal preference as it is about the heart. I've shared a story, uh, Jim Matthews, he's since gone to be with the Lord. He's just a lovely brother and a dear friend. And and I was leading a Sunday morning service at a church in Northern California. And we prayed before service. Here we do that across the way. And at this particular church, we just did it up in front of the the sanctuary before church. And we were there praying, and he said, I got a question for you. He was a little bit jacked up, and I was like, okay, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and pastors don't like really heavy questions right before they teach. But he didn't know that. But now you do. So <laughs> anyway, the point is, is, he goes, I got a question. And I said, what's that? And he goes, how come we don't use old hymns? And I, we, don't, they, we don't do it like we did at the Baptist church. And, and I was like, oh, here goes. And, and the strength of the Holy Spirit came over me at that moment. And I said something to him that I was kind of, I, like I walked away going, wow, that was heavy. Um, and I just looked at him and I said, Jim, we're not doing it for you. We're doing it for him. And we're welcoming you to follow along. And I watched the Holy Spirit convict this guy to the core. I mean, he loved the Lord. And it was an honest question, but he said, well, how, how? And he started stumbling along. He said, well, how come nobody ever told me that before? And I said, well, you, you've not been taught till you came here. And you're being taught God's word. And you've got to understand, worship is not for us. It's for him. It's for his glory. It's for his fame. It's not about if you don't like our style and you just can't worship, then you probably need to find another place to worship. But the point is, get past that. I, I sat in a church. We didn't have a worship leader for months. When I first started at Calvary Chapel down in Gridley, California, and my pastor, Bob, who was my pastor for 30 years, he drug an organ from his living room down and he didn't know how to play. It had one of those paper things, you know, the tip to do. And I called it oompa-pa worship. <laughs> and I'm going to be really honest with you guys. When he first started, he'd be singing away and he didn't know how to sing. 
but he'd be singing away and he'd be rolling the, the reel on this, on this organ. And, and I'm thinking, Lord, this is hard. <laughs> and God busted me. The spirit of God just got a hold of me. And I was so convicted because it's like, who are you to say how I'm worshiped? Are you qualifying your worship, John? And it was a very, very revealing time for me. And I realized it's not about the style. It's about my heart. And, and, and I pictured it, like I mentioned earlier, I pictured, you know, if Jesus had showed up in that room, would I have all of a sudden snapped to? Probably, because I wrestled with that. But by the time he was finished and God raised someone else up, I was having a wonderful time worshiping the Lord to the oompa-pa organ. And, and that's just what it was. It, it will never be anything but that. But it was a real learning time for me to understand an aspect of worship. It's from the heart. Here's a closing story uh, that I want to read to you before we partake of communion. And if you don't have any of the elements, we'll make those available to you. This is from an article that, that a brother, a pastor, friend passed on to me. 22 years ago, a young songwriter named Matt Redman was in, was the worship leader at Soul Survival Church, Soul Survivor Church in Watford, uh, England, which is not far from London. The pastor there was Mike Pilavachi. And the church was one of many in the UK contributing to the growth of the modern worship movement. They were in a season that would typically be considered blessed or an exciting time for the church. The worship music was cutting edge. The style was building momentum in churches across the country, and the church had the requisite equipment to sound great. Many in the church were in their teens or 20s, and so it was a very young crowd that would be drawn to the modern music. With great credit to the pastor, Pilavachi discerned that amidst the music and the fervor, something was missing. Maybe it could be described as an authenticity in worship. Maybe the lines were blurred between worshiping God and loving the music. Whatever was happening, here's how Redmond describes it. There was a dynamic missing. So the pastor did a pretty brave thing, he recalls. He decided to get rid of the sound system and band for a season, and we gathered together with just our voices. His point was that we'd lost our way in worship. And the way to get back to the heart would be to strip everything away. What followed was probably a few very awkward services for a typically upstart young crowd. No drums, no guitars, no microphones. In fact, no sound system. I have to cut in here. Something that I'm fond of saying is that this building was built in 1908. How much of that stuff did they have when they started worshiping God here? And believe me, I will guarantee you God has been worshipped in this place with none of that. I'm not saying we're going to do that. But the point is, he says, no worship leader at the front with a band and a loud sound where you can feel your heartbeat with every thump and kick of the kick drum. No musical set of four to six songs planned. You can imagine that the group initially didn't know what to do, sitting in the room with nothing but their Bibles in temporary silence. Several challenges emerged in the form of questions for the congregation. And these are good. I would invite you to take these to heart. 
Are you a producer in worship? Or a consumer? Pilavachi asks. When you come through the doors on a Sunday, what are you bringing as your offering to God? After some awkwardness, eventually heartfelt prayer and uh, acapella singing would spring forth. Gradually, they reintroduced the instruments. But not only did the congregation encounter God in a new way, and not only did they understand more deeply the heart God calls us to have in worship, Matt Redmond's song, Heart of Worship, was born out of that time. Here are the lyrics. When the music fades, all is stripped away. And I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth, that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours. Every single breath, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. As we look around, folks, and we see that in many regards, our, our society is tilting out of control. You see that there are things that have gripped our world that just two years ago, we wouldn't have even thought that that, that, that could be happening. I've also seen, and it, it grieves my heart, and part of this, the reason why I'm bringing this message this morning, is I see worship of God being derailed in church culture. I don't want that to happen here because the next step is it becomes perverted. We want to offer good fire. I think about Nadab and Abihu, <laughs> who were two sons of Aaron. And they were the original guys that went into worship to offer to the Lord. Things didn't go well for them because they came with perverse worship says that they offered strange fire to the Lord. And the Lord answered them with fire. (laughs) And they were toast. I I read that story and I think, oh Lord, you know, if there's any application for me, yeah, we're not in Old Testament times and all that. I'm not, not getting legalistic on you here. Nor am I here to throw rocks, as I mentioned, at other churches. But worship in general, I see some really difficult things happening. I see so much of what is peddled, and I say that intentionally, because it's a huge business, is really not worship. It's got to be centered on him. And my heart has to be focused on him, not on me. I can't be looking for catharsis. Yeah, I might have a cathartic reaction, and I do. Sometimes I come out of a deep period of worship where I'm just like, oh God, I just am so blessed, or I've wept, or whatever. Catharsis is part of it, can be part of it. But I can't live for that. That can't be. Because then catharsis becomes the object of my worship. Instead of the Lord being the object of my worship. 
We learn a lot from Mary. There in Luke chapter 1. And she was a woman who obviously loved the Lord. She was a woman who was reliant upon his grace, as I mentioned, just like you and I. She was a woman who was willing to unashamedly worship him. And her worship was based in God's word. Her worship was solid. Her worship was from her heart. That it was from her heart, it was always directed towards God. Check your hearts, gang. I'm not saying I see some glaring thing. Like I said, we keep a fairly tight rein on, on the words that we use. And, and yeah, there's times where things get through. And I'm not inviting a bunch of people to inspect that. But my point is, is that individually, as we check our hearts, we say, Lord, is there an aspect of my worship that's not pleasing to you? Is there an aspect of my worship that perhaps has been exposed this morning that I want to, I want to, I want to correct? And I want to ask you, Lord, to forgive me and and to help me to get this right. But especially, guys, when we look at worship, again, it's only a small part of it that's music. Am I worshiping God with my life? Am I worshiping him with my entire being? Am I worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Because John chapter, was it chapter six, chapter four, where Jesus is with the woman, the Samaritan woman. And she says, well, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Talking about Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans worshiped. They had this weird worship going up there. And and Jesus said, well, you know, you you don't know how to worship because (laughs) salvation is coming from the Jews. And right now it's in Jerusalem, but the time's coming when it won't be in Jerusalem or here implied on Mount Gerizim. Because those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Those two things. That's worshiping God with my life. It's not Calvary Chapel Newburgh where you were. Yes, it's a place where you go and you corporately worship. And that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. But I worship him from my heart with my life. That's what Mary was expressing that day in front of Elizabeth. And she would have a road ahead of her that would be filled with wonder. In different ways, yeah. Our lives reflect the relationship that we have with the Lord. I advise caution. If your worship has gotten derailed, come back to the heart of worship. I love that story about the heart of worship here, where where Matt Redman is essentially saying, you know, things were just going wrong at our church, and our pastor discerned that, and he just shut it all down. He just said, nope, we're done. We're going to worship God without all of that stuff. And like I mentioned, you know, there's a place in me where I would love to do that here. And we may do that at some point. We're not doing it today. You're going, oh, good. Um, But I thought it was a great example of what happens when we get back to simplicity. In simplicity of heart. That's how we're told in Colossians. 
And I believe that's a word for us today.